Welcome to This Is Revolution. My name is Jean Vagelan, in for Jason Miles on this pre-record. So we're recording on the day of the Morocco-France match. So by the time you watch this, we'll know if Morocco has won the World Cup. But today we will not be talking about Morocco or football or anything like that. We have actually already talked about that on the show, but we will be talking about Turkey's upcoming elections. So 2023, there are elections scheduled in Turkey and the election season is already beginning. And this is going to be quite a pivotal election in Turkish history. So uh, we figured we'd have a conversation with an expert on this issue. So today I am going to be joined by Uh, Jim Ryan, who is the Director of Research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. He is a historian. He has written on Turkey and he has a recent article in War on the Rocks, uh, The Path Ahead in Turkey's Upcoming Electoral Campaign. So he has been following these elections uh, quite closely. And so I would like to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for joining me today to talk about this upcoming election in Turkey. Uh, thanks so much, Gene. And uh, there's a lot to talk about. It's a lot to keep on tra- on top of. And uh, I think we're probably going to want to start off talking about you know events that are literally unfolding as we're recording this. So uh, it's great to be here. Well, yeah, thank you again. So yeah, so let's put this in a little bit of context. So in November, you wrote this article uh, on Turkey's upcoming election discussing some of the, you know, Uh, some of the paradigms and dynamics that are shaping this election. But, you know, uh, a week is a long time in politics and a month is an eternity. So today, uh, and it is the 14th of December at the moment, today there's been some quite important news in Turkey. Could you outline what's happened uh, today in Turkey and why it might be significant? So uh, what we've seen literally just in the last uh, couple of hours is uh, a sentence come down in a, a trial that um, has, has implicated the current mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, who many believe is you know, a potential contender uh, in this election, uh, possibly the, I mean, I, people will say, and I agree that he is potentially the most talented politician who could be nominated to challenge Erdogan in the upcoming June elections. Um, he's been sentenced to to a two and a half year prison sentence uh, for insulting the uh, higher electoral authority uh, in Turkey. Uh, he called them idiots <laughs> uh, for having decided to make the election that he won twice uh, in 2019 to become mayor of his, uh, Istanbul, you know, basically becoming the first non-AKP uh, or, or, or Erdogan uh, favoring mayor of Istanbul in almost two decades. Um, you know, he, he, he made this uh, this insult uh, to the higher electoral authority for having called a, a rerun of that election, which he then won by a wider margin than he won the first time. Uh, and as a result of that um, and these charges, he's been um, you know, put through this kind of show trial uh, and the initial decision has been handed down to, to imprison him for two and a half years and ban him from politics. And, and what is, I think, a pretty naked attempt to try and, um, you know, disallow him from running 
in the in the June elections. He, so to, so to provide all. a little bit of context for people who are not so familiar uh, with mm -hmm. Turkey, uh, the party of uh, the president uh, Erdogan, the uh, Justice and Development Party (AKP), uh, according to its Turkish uh, acronym. They have been, uh, you know, the dominant force in Turkey since their coming to power in uh, 2002. Mm -hmm. And they have controlled uh, the uh, position of mayor in Istanbul for much of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a significant position in Turkey because, you know, Istanbul is an extremely large city. And, you know, the mayor of Istanbul next to the president is the person who has the largest sort of electoral uh, a constituency. So he mm -hmm. is a figure who, uh, in his election, overturned the ruling party's control over not just any old uh, town uh, mayoralship, but uh, a, an extremely important large mayoralship that you know has a lot of political power. Although I believe the uh, Justice and De Development Party after his election reduced some of the powers of the mayor. But he has, as mayor, had this huge political platform as, you know, transformed him into an important national figure. And he is a member of the main opposition party in Turkey, the Republican uh, People's Party. So, right. so you see this as being a kind of naked attempt to remove him from the chessboard of potential mm -hmm. candidates um, uh, who could run for uh, president against Erdogan in 2023. Why would a mayor of Istanbul be, uh, you know, become a candidate for president for people who are not familiar mm -hmm. with the Turkish uh, political system? Mm -hmm. What's going on in mm -hmm. terms of running a candidate in opposition? How are they selected? And, you know, who are the, who are the other candidates and why... Mm -hmm. You know why? Why? Why is Imam Olu, this mayor of Istanbul, such an uh, taking him off the chessboard? Why is that such uh, an important uh, uh, move by the sure. government? So, as you said, Istanbul is Turkey's largest city by far. Uh, becoming mayor of Istanbul basically requires a level of political backing, skill, and talent that is really unmatched uh, in any other position except, well, except what was the prime ministerial position position as now the presidency. Uh, in fact, Erdogan himself was mayor of Istanbul before he became prime minister in 2002. And the sort of added layer of irony uh, to these events is that Erdogan himself, while he was mayor of Istanbul, was imprisoned for uh, having read uh, uh, what was at the time seen uh, as a, a you know sort of pointedly Islamist uh, poem at uh, at an event, um, and he was imprisoned for roughly the same amount of time uh, that Imamolu has been sentenced. Um, and surely, you know, for for Imamolu, I mean, the irony of this is not lost, uh, and he realized, uh, you know, I think quite quickly uh, after becoming mayor of uh, Istanbul that. Uh, you know, this was going to be a springboard for him to take over uh, the presidency. He was telling people as far as, I, you know, from what I've heard from people on the ground, you know, pretty soon after his victory in 2019, he was saying, like, see you in Ankara in 2023, you know, uh, <laughs> Ankara being being Turkey's capital. Um, so in terms of 
the mayor of Istanbul being, you know, really one of the most important uh, positions anyone can hold, you know, that's that's certainly important. What is also, I think, key to understand about Imamola's 2019 victory as it pertains to a potential pre presidential campaign is Imamolu has demonstrated uh, a kind of political trick that the current concatenation of opposition parties in Turkey haven't haven't figured out how to do, um, if I can put it that way. Uh, basically, the situation that we have coming up to these elections is that the opposition parties who have been fractured and fragmented for so long, uh, but between them kind of could cobble together a coalition big enough to take down Erdogan, have been working on an unprecedented arrangement to sort of come together behind one candidate. But it's, it remains to be seen who that candidate will be. This is complicated by the fact that the six parties who have so far agreed to be in a coalition do not include the uh, uh, People's Democracy Party, the HDP, the predominantly Kurdish leftist uh, party, which holds down somewhere between maybe 7 and 13 percent of the electorate. Um, when Imamoglu won in 2019 uh, in Istanbul, he had the tacit support of the HDP. HDP voters came out for him, even though he did basically nothing to campaign uh, you know, on their behalf. And he did so knowing, and this is, again, the problem that is the sort of paradox that's posed to any opposition presidential candidate, knowing that the HDP itself is considered by the regime and by many Turks to be kind of politically toxic. Um, so it, it's sort of this catch-22 where um, a, a successful opposition campaign against the AKP and against uh, Erdogan requires support from Kurdish voters, support in some fashion, explicit or implicit, from the HDP, both in Istanbul and nationwide. And we can get into why that's a kind of tougher trick to pull. Um, you know, you need that kind of tacit support in order to pull off this kind of a victory. Imamoglu has done it on the scale of Istanbul. Uh, it, there's been little evidence to demonstrate that any of the other potential candidates, whether it be the leader of the CHP, the People's Republican Party, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, could pull that off, or probably much less so, uh, one of the other members of that coalition, like like Meral Akşener, leader of the E party, a fairly new sort of uh, hard right nationalist secularist party. Uh, that has you know, is really kind of the second biggest party in that coalition of six. Um, so that, that's kind of kind of how I, I see the challenge ahead for the opposition parties and why Imamolu is viewed as this threat because he's kind of he can kind of prove that he's he's pulled this coalition together in the way that it needs to in order to overcome uh, a challenge to Erdogan. So when we look at the opposition to Erdogan there isn't really any ideological or political unity. It's an entirely kind of negative uh, a negative opposition in the sense that you have various political forces in the country, some of which can enter into a tacit alliance with each other, such as the Republican People's Party uh, and the, uh, uh, the E-Party, which is a split from the MHP, which is the uh, far-right party that has allied itself with Erdogan. Uh, but this coalition is fundamentally hampered 
by uh, the fact that one of the most significant opposition forces, uh, the HDP, uh, is excluded because of a kind of ethnic political polarization between Kurds and Turks. And I think one thing that people should uh, know is that during the campaign uh, for the mayoralship of Istanbul, while the HDP kind of tacitly supported Imamoglu, the, the ruling party actually trotted out a letter from the jailed leader of the Kurdistan Workers' Party to try and demobilize uh, uh, Kurdish voters. Uh, but they ended up, you know, rallying behind Imamoglu despite um, being, uh, despite receiving this uh, letter from uh, uh, the PKK, uh, you know, telling them to not get involved in this kind of conflict. So there's, so, you know, bo both sides in this understand the importance of, of the Kurdish vote. And, you know, the AKP seems set on, you know, maintaining this polarization to stop any kind of coalescing into a, a meaningful opposition uh, to, to Erdogan. So do you, do you, do you think Erdogan is now safe? Is, is there, uh, is there any, any chance for um, any other opposition candidate to perhaps pull something out the bag? Well, I, I should say, from my reading of the situation in the sentence, uh, Imamoglu can still appeal. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's entirely possible that he could uh, sort of kick the can and draw this out past uh, the election. So, you know, it's entirely possible that this whole uh, charade blows up uh, in Erdogan's face uh, if uh, Imamoglu himself uh, is nominated under duress, <laughs> in a sense, uh, that could feed into a very uh, different uh, kind of narrative for the campaign. Um, but I, it's, like I said, it still very much remains to be seen, even if Imamoglu will be the one uh, to be nominated. And this, uh, you know, I partly laid out in, in my War on the Rocks essay, which is that there's very serious uh, seeming disagreements between the leaders and the key figures within uh, the opposition coalition writ large, but also particularly within the CHP. Um, you know, the leader of the CHP, as I mentioned earlier, Kemal Kilichdorolu, uh, has been acting at least thus far as if he, you know, intends to make himself the nominee. Um, it's widely thought that he doesn't have the charisma the um, leadership, the, uh, you know, the, the kind of political juice to, to really excite and, and mobilize people across the country. He's, he's certainly older, uh, you know, certainly more soft-spoken, uh, you know, in that way, um, and is, is a little bit more of a political manager than he, he is a candidate. But by the same token, it's also viewed uh, by some that uh, Kilic Dorolu, you know, were he to win, would be the man most likely to follow through on the kinds of promises between these opposition parties uh, that that bind them to each other, if not themselves to their voters, which is that the promise that the, these parties have all made to one another is that if we win, we're going to push through constitutional changes that are going to revert the country back to a more parliamentary system. Uh, and in fact, the first set of policies that the CHP has sort of laid out in this electoral campaign have been election, uh, 
constitutional changes that would reflect exactly that. Um, so there is this sort of paradox where, you know, Kilach Darolu is viewed as the guy most likely to follow through on the promise that binds everybody together. And that Imam Olu may be just an, another Erdogan in waiting, uh, you know, more maybe more likely to beat Erdogan, but let, maybe less likely to actually follow through on these promises. So I think those dynamics are really interesting uh, to follow. And I, I should note, I think, to me, the most striking thing of the events that have been unfolding right now is that, uh, you know, Today, you know, it was known that the sentence was coming down. Uh, the political parties in, in the opposition had called supporters out to Sarachane, uh, the facility where the sentence was going to be handed out. Uh, and uh, there was a kind of a rally for Imam Olu after the sentence came down. And by his side was not Kemal Kilachdorolu, who is in Berlin at the moment. Um, and who was asked about this in kind of a press gaggle, uh, but is seen as you know basically the rival. By his side was actually Meral Akshiner, uh, the leader of the E party, uh, who made a very uh, what appears to be a very stirring speech uh, in support of Emma So there may be some happenings within that coalition where the the other parties may put more pressure on Kilachdorolu to. Uh, support uh, Imamolu in, in his quest to become uh, the nominee. Uh, what about the E-Party? What about the uh, chances of Mala Akshana to become the candidate mm -hmm. uh, and her chances of challenging Erdogan? Mm -hmm. I mean, on one hand, she might not be able to bring in the Kurds to a coalition, but one of her advantages is that she might be able to draw away from Erdogan's nationalist support base. Mm -hmm. So it might be a kind of different strategy of a, a, a new coalition that brings in sort of uh, the uh, uh, Jehepez kind of Kamalist nationalism with discontented elements of the far right. Mm -hmm. It's certainly possible. I mean, to this point, Meryl Auctioneer's line has been that she's running for prime minister and not for president. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, you know, she's running so that the uh, country can you know return to parliamentary system that they'll have a coalition government in which she would have uh, a very very prominent position uh, and influence over uh, policy. Uh, she also a few months ab back at the first whisper that there might be uh, you know sort of backdoor talks between the CHP and the HDP about election strategy threatened to nuke the alliance that she was uh, a part of. I mean she she has a very difficult. I think, um, circle to square within her own party. The E party, which uh, I believe is split off from the MHP about six years ago or something like that, um, is, it, you know, comes out of a tradition of sort of like hard right ultranationalist politics uh, in, in Turkey that, um, you know, is, of course, very hostile uh, to Kurds. They hostile to Syrian refugees. Um, and, you know, engage in a lot of really, you know, sort of um, historically very ethno-nationalist and racist uh, kinds of politics within Turkey going back to, you know, the 1930s and 1940s. And Meryl Akshener's role in all of this has been to kind of soften that image somehow, um, to sort of make them more mainstream, make them more, uh, you know, part of the acceptable, you know, political framework to present them as present her supporters and her party as being more technocratic, 
than their more ideological predecessors so that they can play a larger role uh, in a functioning government. Um, and that produces some really strange and weird, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, kinds of politics, I think. You know, I mean, just the other day, I noticed yet again, the E party, um, you know, on Twitter basically, uh, you know, sent up a memorial like they have done for several years uh, to this, uh, you know, racist turnist intellectual Nihal Atsas. Uh, Sci-fi author. Yeah, sci-fi author. <laughs> Uh, you know, among other things, uh, you know, but really kind of the, the grandfather of, uh, you know, the, the sort of ultra-right, ultra-nationalist ideology, pan-terranist ideology, uh, you know, that has, that has, you know, permeated in these circles for decades now, uh, who himself is like also, you know, like, you know, was at certain points a supporter of the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, you know, has, has numerous anti-Semitic statements, uh, you know, out there. I mean, again, like, to see this guy sort of brought back as this kind of fuzzy figure is, is as someone who's spent a lot of time, probably too much time reading this guy's work. You know, this is the kind of thing that it's really disconcerting and strange and weird. And doesn't that speak to the fact that the, you know, the, the split between the MHP and the E party was never really an ideological split. Nothing. It was a split over the ossified leadership of the MHP. Right. I mean, this is a common problem in Turkish political parties where you, you know, you have these political parties that uh, end up being in the hands of uh, charismatic leaders for extended periods of time. I mean, this is the this this is what happened with the JHP. It was under the control of Dennis Baikal for a long time until he got caught doing sex crimes. That was the only thing that could oust him. And now Kılıçdaroğlu, uh, Daoğlu, despite you know, a series of electoral losses is still in firm control of his political party and still posturing as a potential opposition candidate. So, you know, the the E party, you know, may be trying to soften its image, but its split was never an ideological one. It was a it was a related to the kind of hierarchical bureaucratic structures that existed within that party and the desire of a younger generation. I mean, I don't know how old Baikal is now. Uh, sorry, um, uh, Devlet Bacheli, the, the leader of the MHP. And I should note that not so long ago, people were talking about Devlet Bacheli, the leader of the MHP, as a guy who was like making the, uh, you know, Turkish uh, far right more palatable to a mainstream audience. Yeah, no, sure. And and Bacheli, I, I, yeah, I was curious about that and just looked at He's 74, which is actually, I think, about the same age as Kilich Doral, like who, who himself, when he came on, you know, seemed like a spring chicken, <laughs> you know, coming on the heels of Denis Baikal, uh, the previous leader uh, of the CHP. And Amy Merrill Auctioner herself, I mean, has a long history in Turkish politics. She was, you know, in key posts uh, in different parties in the 1990s and coalitions, and then kind of came into the MHP fold uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So, I mean, she she herself is not um, a new face by by any means. It's really Imamolu who is the really newest person on on the scene, uh, you know, in these kinds of pol in this you know political moment, um, and you know, it's his sort of youth and vitality, and uh, you know, and the kinds of policies that he's um, implemented uh, in Istanbul that are, I mean, what passes for new and and, and exciting ideas in Turkish politics <laughs> these days, you know, especially uh, on a wide scale. 
um, you know, it's, it, and as you said, I mean, it's a really, you know, it, it's, it's been a really common dynamic in Turkish politics to have these powerful political parties that are, you know, in control, you know, are, are controlled by more or less the same set of characters for a very, very long time and transitions between or handoffs between generations in these politics or particularly within these political parties takes a very, very long time to affect. Um, but, but by the same token, there are also very many minor political parties and very many minor, uh, you know, political organizations in which there's lots of vitality, uh, and in which there's lots of new and interesting ways of affecting, uh, politics. And the HDP is just one example of this. Um, but, you know, people, you know, might not realize that there, you know, one of the mayor mayoralities uh, in Turkey was uh, run by a communist for a long time, um, and he did lots of really interesting things, <laughs> uh, you know, that that aren't characteristic of the kinds of Turkish politics you see in, in many other places. So, you know, I, I just want to like caution against, you know, characterizing Turkish politics as sort of hopelessly stale, you know, in this way. Uh, there is a lot of kind of dynamism and uh, vitality kind of just underneath the surface of, of a lot of these, uh, you know, sort of a lot of these political parties that are tend to be run by these stale or older figures. So what would you say then is the primary obstacle to kind of new forms of politics becoming dominant in Turkey, or at least gaining ground in Turkey? Is it just the, you know, AKP government, but or is it the structure of the op main opposition itself? Mm -hmm. I mean, do it's they a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of both. Uh, look, you know, one tool that, and this is again, coming back to my War on the Rocks piece that Erdogan has at his disposal that the opposition parties don't seem to be able to use very well as foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's able to, Erdogan is able to engineer uh, narratives about Turkey's place in the world, Turkey's, you know, uh, who, who Turkey's enemies are, who their friends are, Turkish leadership, Turkish integra integration into regional politics uh, in ways that the opposition parties just, and even someone like Imam Oluk just can't articulate clearly in any kind of way. Um, and, and that's a really powerful tool. And, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, we've seen, I, I think, kind of what at least at first glance seems to be kind of a almost schizophrenic uh, a kind of strategy from Erdogan in the last couple of months where he's playing the peacemaker in Ukraine, but threatening to send missiles to Athens uh, over the Greek islands and, you know, bombing, uh, you know, uh, Kurdish positions in Syria. Um, you know, I think what we're, we're seeing there is a, a set of gambits um, meant to, kind of narrow the the sorts of positions that an opposition candidate might take uh you know when it comes to to these elections and and try frankly i think try to box in uh, you know a candidate like kilach dorolu or even imamolu in a more nationalist kind of position to make it harder for him to appeal to to kurds to you know minorities and uh, to these sorts of folks, I, I I made kind of I kind of went out there and made a prediction that there might be like a dovish turn by Erdogan in the, in, in the next couple of months. That a lot of this more heated rhetoric, uh, particularly around Greece, uh, might actually climb down at some point. Um, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I think it's just important to point out that that option is available to him. 
uh, and it may take shape depending on you know whether the CHP name a candidate or not. Certainly, you know, in, in a the week or two after I published that piece, you know, the the there was the Istanbul the bombing, uh, and the reaction to that actually quite predictably has been a, a bombing campaign by Turkey uh, in. Uh, of Kurdish positions, uh, PYD positions uh, in, in Syria. There's still threats of another ground incursion. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, and I'm curious to see if it will. But, you know, that that's, yeah. And it's right. important to note that uh, although the Turkish government was quick to blame uh, Kurdish groups for the bombing, uh, the evidence, and not just, you know, kind of uh, speculation, but even mainstream newspapers such as Cumhuriyet, I've said, well, there are actually evidence that there's connections to uh, uh, Islamist forces based in, in in Syria at the moment. So, like, never let a good opportunity go to, uh, to go to crisis. But I think your observation in the article about the foreign policy is extremely important, and you can I think you could even make a broader point that the the Erdogan and the AKP are kind of chameleon-like in mm. their kind of uh, positioning. Uh, in that there is a constant contradiction within that discourse, which the um, opposition just can't really deal with. Mm -hmm. So in the sense that uh, on one hand, for example, in foreign policy, uh, Erdogan is playing a kind of pseudo anti-imperialist line that draws together his nationalist base, Islamist base, as well as sort of uh, renegade former leftists, Maoists, and groups like this uh, by mobilizing this kind of discourse against the United States, while at the same time kind of uh, telling the West that, you know, we're an important ally, you should, you know, respect us, we're, we're responsible. Uh, and then, you know, in domestic policy, on one hand, they're playing a hard nationalist line, but then they're also able to portray their opposition as being racists against Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. And so there's this entire, there's this, uh, there's this seemingly contradictory ideological hodgepodge mm -hmm. uh, centered around uh, Erdogan. So, for example, as soon as this bombing in Istanbul happened, uh, the um, Turkish interior minister sort of blamed. America, there was some harsh words exchanged, and then that was rolled back mm -hmm. by Erdogan himself. So the opposition can never really develop a critique because there's never really a, uh, the 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 discourse is constantly in a state of flux between anti-imperialism mm -hmm. and and kind of conciliation with the Western bloc, between ultra-nationalism on one hand and the kind of uh, we're the cosmopolitan, you know, caring. Uh, woke people <laughs> looking after refugees. And so yeah, yeah. The, uh, the opposition can never coalesce because there's n nothing concrete to coalesce against. It, it, certainly at the discursive level, that's true. Uh, I think once you start getting below the surface, you sort of start to see some of the logics behind these positions. I mean, to take Syria as an example, you know, you know he is a very tough needle to thread on this issue. Uh, you know, I, I kind of sensed even a, a year ago that the election campaign was going to be about who can beat up on Syrians harder. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's cer certainly Syrian refugees in Turkey, uh, you know, which number north of three or four million, uh, you know, have been, uh, you know, coming to Turkey and housed in Turkey for over a decade now. 
um, have become a scapegoat for the economic problems that the country has been facing, which is, you know are largely due to the sort of very fanciful and unorthodox monetary policies around interest rates that uh, Erdogan has been implementing his entire career. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, the, the opposition parties for sure have played this card. Erdogan has tried to play it. Uh, you know, everyone seems to have to have some kind of a plan for sending Syrians back uh, to Syria. And we saw this a few months ago in the sort of first inklings of a possible rapprochement be between Erdogan and the Assad regime uh, that still hasn't materialized. Uh, and I think part of it, and, and so, and you know, some of this comes out too around the possibility of a ground incursion in Syria that would, in theory, like make it easier for Erdogan to march Syrians back uh, to Syria through some kind of, you know, cordon sanitaire or or some, you know, into some area, uh, you know, that was controlled, you know, de facto or de jure by by Turkish uh, forces. The, the problem is, you know, let's look at the economy. I mean, it's in shambles right now and it's being patched over uh, by a few things. It's being patched over by, uh, you know, trade with Russia, which it has, you know, Turkey has continued to do uh, despite the war in Ukraine. Uh, this grain deal that was recently struck was a huge foreign policy win in Erdogan's eyes, um, you know, and on the other side, uh, you know, the amount of foreign support that they've been able to get from the Gulf. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, actually right on the heels of Saudi Arabia's victory in their uh, group stage match at the World Cup, Mohammed bin Salman pledged $5 billion uh, to Turkey, uh, you know, to cover some of their foreign accounts deficits, uh, which is part of what's driving inflation there. Um, and by a third token, uh, what has been sort of the main one of the main features of Erdogan's politics over the last 10 or 12 years has been the what we call mega projects, a third bridge over the Bosphorus, uh, you know, an, another, another bridge over the Dardanelles uh, and then probably most dramatically or the, the, the new airport, but also most dramatically the plans for this new um, canal that is going to be dug across uh, Turkish Thrace that will function as a second shipping lane in addition to the Bosphorus. All of this development has been, you know, largely affected by uh, Syrian labor. Uh, and the Syrians that have been there are the ones that have, by and large, you know, resettled many of these places. And you go to the outskirts of Istanbul these days and you'll see uh, high schools that are, you know, almost entirely populated by Syrian children that, that were Arabic because the language of instruction even. Um, you know, the, there's been a lot of social movement on the ground to appeal to Syrian refugees. So how much, you know, Erdogan even really wants or needs uh, to send Syrian refugees back is a, is a question, is a, is a very open and live question. Um, and I think so basically when you start looking at the economy, I mean, th that starts to pull out some of the logics, I think, that explain these seemingly contradictory positions that Erdogan has taken. Over. And in terms of the Syrian refugees, can we talk a little bit about their status within Tur Turkey? Because, uh, you know, they're not covered by, for example, international refugee conventions, but no. rather they have a kind of uh, 
in permanent status, legal mm-hmm. status given to them. So they kind of function as a, you know, an effective reserve army of labor for 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 these uh, me- mega projects mm-hmm. that lack many of the, you know, um, legal protections that Turkish citizens might have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a highly differentiated uh you know, environment uh, for for Syrian refugees, and it's it's actually, I mean, I think it's something that's developed over time. Uh, you know, I think initially in the early stages a decade ago, uh, you know, you saw most of these refugees being more or less held uh, in camps in the southeast, uh, close to the Syrian border, kind of waiting and seeing what was going to turn out uh, in the conflict. And as the as the conflict has become more protracted. Syrians have become more sort of encamped and ingrained uh, in Turkish society. More and more of them moved, uh, you know, moved west uh, to Ankara, to Istanbul, to places on the coast. You, of course, we've seen many, uh, you know, quite tragic, uh, you know, um, videos and stories about Syrian refugees trying to make their way to Greece, to make their way into the EU. Of course, we also know, you know. Uh, Per, seemingly permanent feature of Erdogan's politics with the EU has been a kind of extortion where he you know, threatens to open the gates, uh, the floodgates of refugees uh, into Europe uh, in exchange, and in exchange he receives uh, some kind of payment, uh, quite famous for many meetings with Angela Merkel on this issue um, and, and decisions that have come out of that. Um, you know, they're a political football. You know, a, a very, very live political football. And I think, you know, it's it's something to watch in the course of the elections. Who indeed takes a harder line uh, on on sending refugees back and, and how imbricated that is into uh, the larger economic questions? I mean, the, it, it, the economy is the issue where Erdogan is weakest right now. I mean, the, the lira is astoundingly poor right now. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about the economy. What has been happening in the Turkish economy? So, you know, for much of the first few terms of uh, of the AKP's rule in Turkey, there was a significant degree of economic growth. And perhaps more importantly, Turkey was able to, it's not that that economic growth had never happened before, but Turkey was able to uh, present that to the international world as like, look at uh, look at our, you know, tr- tremendous development when in fact, you know, they were, picking up on economic policies and trends that, you know, date back to the 1980s, the growth mm-hmm. of neoliberalism, the emergence of, uh, a, a, you know, strong manufacturing base, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, more generally, the spread of a kind of uh, corporate capitalism across uh, uh, the country with the formation of national chains and, you know, all these kind of large corporatization of a lot of things that have been going on in Turkey. Like a good example would be smeat, which is the tasty, the tasty bread treat. You know, that was usually something people produced in a neighborhood in a bakery. But of course, now there is a smeat sarai, which is the, uh, which is like a big smeat corporation that, you know, has taken over the field. Um, so, you know, you had this development of Turkish capitalism, uh, a maturation of neoliberal Turkish capitalism, capitalism, which has spread not only in Turkey, but also to uh, Iraqi Kurdistan is a major uh, economic uh, dependency on on Turkish capitalism. Other parts of the world, other parts of the Middle East, Turkish change, Turkish companies have been kind of uh, 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 growing. So we've seen sort of this early phase of kind of what looked on paper a successful 
uh, transition of Turkey from being in the early 1980s a predominantly agrarian peasant country to a kind of modern industrial sort of middle ranking uh, industrial mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what's happened? Why? Why did? Why is the lira in the toilet? What's Mm -hmm. you know, what, what what's hit the crisis of Turkish capitalism? Right. So, I mean, to the, I think aside from what you've just mentioned in terms of like the expansion of national brands and the kind of, you know, more grand neoliberal turn uh, in Turkish uh, capitalism and economy in the 2000s, um, which is certainly the narrative that the AKP, I should say, like, sponsored and wanted to put out there about itself in the 2000s. I mean, they, the, the, the line straight from the party to the West and particularly the United States in the 2000s was that we're no different from George Bush's Republican Party. You know, we are pro-capitalism and we're socially conservative. Like, that's just it. The only difference is we're Muslim and not Christian. Like, uh, and, you know, a lot of people bought that. Um, you know, a lot of people bought that. But what I think is key to understanding how things have gone and why the Turkish economy was in such a vulnerable position despite being- Can I just interject that? Yeah, when sure. you say that a lot of people bought that, I mean, was it really at that point actually a deception? Was that mm. not how the IKP saw itself mm. and only and events have transformed the sort of political orientation? Or do you think yeah. this was always a kind of like they always had this kind of authoritarian bent to them hmm. uh, and it only came out later once they well, secured power? I think it depends who you asked within the party, mm -hmm. to be sure. I mean, the, the the coalition that was the AKP in the 2000s is not the coalition that exists today. I mean, mm -hmm. that 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 I think that much I think is clear. I think there's and I think some of the figures that would have promoted exactly that image are no longer in the AKP and they're part of the opposition party coalition now. You look at figures like Ahmed Davutoglu, uh, who and Ali Babajan, uh, you know, both former cabinet level level ministers in the AKP who have formed opposition parties in the last couple of years with the ex express pur purpose of joining a government that would succeed Erdogan. Um, these were the guys who were the architects, by and large, uh, of of you know the early years of. AKP economic policy. They these were the guys who were viewed uh, at the time as you know the adults in the room, the competent ones, the ones who were well trained, uh, and have simply just you know fallen out of favor over the last few years. Um, so to you know really the shift once those guys were kind of on the outs was towards more towards these mega projects specifically, but in a much more general sense, a really overheated um, construction sector. Uh, that you know expressed itself both through huge public housing uh, uh, projects and uh, just like debt fueled um, growth and development across a, you know cities everywhere in Turkey. I mean, the most dramatic change across Turkish uh, the Turkish landscape, uh, literally over the AKP period, has been massive urbanization. And development in urban areas, skyscrapers where you never thought you'd ever see one, and you know many of them kind of half empty, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and, and you have to, and a lot of this is is been paid for, you know, with with debt, with financing from the Gulf, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, um, you know, and basically with with COVID. You know, I think it had already been starting to slip before then, but with uh, COVID and the massive 
drop in in tourism revenue, which is a huge, huge part of the Turkish economy. Um, things went from wobbly to off a cliff. And, you know, in the in the last three years, Turkey has only cut interest rates, you know, again and again and again and again, uh, down to seemingly uh, comically low levels in the face of inflation that has really come, you know, through the roof. The official uh, inflation figures right now put the lira at about 17 or 18 to one uh, to the dollar. And I mean, when I first went to Turkey, which was kind of at the height of the AKP period in the middle of the 2000s, it was uh, a lira 25 to the dollar. I mean, mm -hmm. a sense of how thing, far things have fallen, you know, so that, that, that is a really dramatic drop. Um, and even from five years ago, uh, you know, where, when it was maybe seven or eight to the dollar, this is an even more uh, dramatic fall. And the AKP came into power after a period of hyperinflation anyway. And one of their selling points was the stabilization yeah. of the currency. They got rid of the zeros. Mm -hmm. Just the, chopped like nine zeros off of the nine currency. Zeros <laughs> off and, then, and then started again. And there was a relative stability in the Turkish currency. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, an, there's the opposition, though. Do they have a plan for mm -hmm. this? Kilishtaolu was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is the opposition's uh, plan other than capitulating to international capital? <laughs> so uh, the uh, economic policy of the CHP, which, again, it can be read as a stand-in for the broader opposition coalition, but I would maybe hedge a little bit on that. I mean, it's not signed on necessarily by the EE party, and it's very much Kilostorolu's idea, not Imamolu's. Um, but th this plan was released uh, about a week ago, uh, and you know, a lot of people were scratching their heads about Kilostorolu's visit to the United States. Like, you know, what is he really doing here? Who is he meeting with? He wasn't meeting with any high-level uh, officials in the U.S. government. There was for a moment. Um, you know, a, a rumor that he might meet with Bernie Sanders, and then that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, we kind of get this reveal in the announcement of the economic plan that he was, you know, going to leading universities in the United States. He went to MIT, he went to Harvard, he went to Johns Hopkins. Um, and he was meeting with, uh, you know, some fairly prominent uh, economic advisors while he was here. Uh, the headline off of that being Daron Ajamolu. Uh, who is, you know, a quite famous, um, you know, economist and, and thinker based at, I believe, at MIT. And he wrote uh, the book, just so people are aware, he's, an, he's Armenian, yes. uh, Turkish uh, citizen, originally a Turkish citizen, but uh, Armenian. And he wrote uh, Why Nations Fail, which was kind of like a very fashionable book about 10 years ago, if people, right. uh, if people, people remember that. Right. So he's, it was a popular book. Very, popular. very, very popular book. And so the, the pitch, uh, at least as far as we've we've heard from Kilos Dorolu, is our economic plan is a return to expertise and competence, um, you know, and we're going to bring in these experts from abroad, some of them uh, to sort of shore that up. Now, how wise a move that really is in a hyper nationalist environment to sort of headline your economic plan with someone who, you know, I mean, it, it, it was immediate in the in, in after the announcement you saw on social media, the kinds of you know, vitriolic attacks against Ajamolu over his Armenian roots. Um, and, you know, I, look, the guy is very, very widely respected. And, you know, obviously there needs to be, you know, that, that's a, an angle you can take a return to competence within, uh, you know, within Turkish uh, economic management. But 
to make that the leading edge of your campaign in an environment that is actually quite hostile to people like that. I don't know how smart that was. Um, and so, and that's like, that's not just a Turkey problem. That's a kind of general, sure. there's a general global disillusionment with quote unquote experts and their actual ability to handle yeah. these crises. So, yeah. you know, like and this alone foreign experts, I mean, or people that aren't based in the country itself. I mean, th this is really, I, you know, the, 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 weird and strange thing about that is that, you know, the whole pitch is that in order to return stability to the uh, Turkish economy, we need the input of people from outside of Turkey and not Turks itself. I mean, again, like that, that kind of move, however much it might make sense as a public policy, just screams like political ineptitude, <laughs> you know, and, and not reading the room, uh, really. So that, that, that is one takeaway that I have from that announcement. I mean, in terms of um, you know what kinds of kinds of economic policies you might expect, um, should the opposition defeat Erdogan in June, um, you know, I think for one thing that very much depends on the candidate, but for another, I think there is going to be at some level, um, you know, a, a return to. Uh, you know, more normal monetary policies, but that's also going to come with really heavy, um, you know, pills to swallow for for the Turkish people in terms of, you know, IMF restrictions and, and the like, you know. So again, like, yeah, the, the other option here seems to, it would be kind of like capitulation on that, on that front. Um, they're really between a rock and a hard place, but for the purposes of the, um, the election, you know, it, it's certainly strange to me um, to not be seeing the opposition party hit Erdo hit Erdogan harder on the economy uh, than they already have, because it's certainly his weakest point. Can you can you give a, a little bit of an idea to uh, our listeners um, about what are the dimensions of the crisis in Turkey? Like, how is this economic crisis affecting people? What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean for people? I mean, mm -hmm. is you know, you say a rock and a hard place. So you you mentioned, you know, if you see a the opposition come to power, there's going to be some tough pill IMF pills for people to swallow, and that's not going to be uh, popular. But Turkey's already in an economic crisis. How is this crisis affecting people? What you know, what are the dimensions of it? Yeah, I mean, it's cost of living primarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the prices of goods have gone through the roof, and you know, if you are making lira, uh, you your purchasing power is is you know through the floor. I mean, I, I was last in Turkey, uh, you know, in August 2021, and things were already quite bad there. And I mean, you know, I, I I made a little bit more money than I made as a graduate student, but like the, the kinds of things that I was able to do without even thinking about how much they cost because I had dollars was just like it would have blown my mind 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago. So, you know, you have on the one hand, you know, rising costs of essential goods, food, uh, heating in the winter is going to be very, very expensive. It was already expensive last year. Um, you know, the, sort of the ability of the average Turk to take care of themselves based on, on a salary, even in the, in the face of wage increases, which we've seen, uh, mandated by the AKP government is is going to continue to be very very difficult. Similarly, you're going to have a very stratified, um, you know, society where you know the few Turks who are you know able to afford nice things, uh, you know, 
probably because they have investments in dollars or maybe they even make dollars, you know, are going to be able to live pretty high uh, on the hog. And you have a really interesting, very, very highly developed uh, luxury sector sector uh, in Turkey, you know, that caters partly to Turks, but also very much to foreigners as well. I mean, there was a really strange and fantastic story. I'm forgetting where I saw it a couple of weeks ago about um, the sort of industry around the parking of mega yachts uh, mm -hmm. in Turkey. Uh, Aegean coast uh, and how that's kind of transformed local economies uh, over the last uh, five or ten years. You're going to see this, uh, you know, only expand. I think in in, in the in the short run, um, particularly as you've seen a lot of capital flight out of out of Russia uh, thanks to the the Ukraine war. Um, again, the allow Turkey allowing uh, Russians, uh, particularly wealthy Russians, uh, you know, to escape what uh, have been pretty heavy sanctions on Russia has been, uh, has had drastic effects. I think, um, you know, uh, that you can, you can see with your own eyes. If you go down the, go, go, go to the usual places, you'll find Russians in Turkey along the Aegean uh, and Mediterranean coast and vacation spots now kind of propped up there permanently. So more generally, this is kind of exacerbating uh, the wealth difference in the country. Absolutely. Uh, and, but, you know, traditional, uh, quote-unquote responsible uh, monetary policy will just mean throwing people out of work hmm. and potentially, yeah. <laughs> potentially throwing people out of work in order to stifle demand mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's it's yeah it's not good for it's not good at the moment I, 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 again i should say absent absent you know uh the ability of uh, whoever's in power to attract you know, really significant investment in other areas from outside. I mean, foreign direct investment is kind of the sine qua non for uh, Erdogan right now. Like I said before, you know, the attraction of dollars through trade with Russia, dollars through, uh, you know, what are basically handouts from Saudi Arabia or from Qatar. Uh, you know, I mean, Turkish foreign policy right now is basically for sale. Uh, <laughs> you know? why, would, why would Gulf countries want to bail out Turkey? Why would countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, why would they be willing to invest money in Turkey? Sure. What's in it for them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, you know, it could it could be a number of things. I mean, you know, I think on the broadest scale, what you're seeing right now, uh, especially with the kind of reordering of priorities, particularly by the Americans in the Middle East in the wake of the Ukraine war, you know, the Biden administration has basically said, uh, we're going to prefer order in this part of the world over, you know, pro-democracy movements, liberalism, human rights, all of this stuff. Uh, and what that basically means is that the oil and resource rich, uh, you know, Gulf countries are going to be able to underwrite regional order however they see fit. Um, and you're you're seeing that in all of the developments that have happened, uh, you know, since the the fated uh, fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman and uh, and and Joe Biden a couple of months ago. This, by the same token, absolutely uh, applies to Gulf relations uh, with Turkey, where you know they are going to be able to buy you know favorable policies vis-a-vis -vis Syria if they like, favorable policies vis-a-vis -vis Iran, which is a, a neighbor of Turkey if they like, um, and then. On, on, on another hand, I mean, look, Gulf money has been pouring into Turkey for quite a long time. And, you know, Gulf citizens have been vacationing in Turkey for quite mm -hmm. a long time.
time. I mean, it, again, I kind of often underlooked uh, development in Turkey over the last several years has been the massive influx of uh, vacation in Gulf Arabs, uh, you know, and tourism from from Gulf countries and whole resorts built just to cater to the those audiences have cropped up all, all over the country. Um, similarly, there's, there's a lot of medical tourism, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in Turkey from from uh, the Gulf. I mean, there, there's a kind of curious story a couple of years ago how, um, you know, Gulf men, uh, you know, came, came frequently to Istanbul to Taksim Square for hair transplants. Yeah, hair <laughs> transplants where it's at, man. That's what's uh, that's... <laughs> Yeah. So it, it could be any number of things. But, uh, you know, again, like it, like I, th- I think the main point is to understand that you know, because of of the need to solve a balance of payments crisis uh, with an influx of federal uh, foreign direct investment, Turkish foreign policy is at this point pretty much for sale to the highest bidder. So as a kind of final question, a final kind of capstone to this discussion, what are Erdogan's prospects then for re-election going into 2023? You know, how likely is he to win? Why if he does win, is he going to be able to win? Is it just going to because they kind of like jerry rigged the election, and or is it is he going to win a you know a mandate? Mm-hmm. So I think the really important point that I'd want to stress here is that uh, by and large, elections in Turkey, this is true under Erdogan, and true going back into practically the first multi-party elections Turkey had in 1947. Um, elections in Turkey are generally free. Mm-hmm. The ballot box is viewed by Turks as a kind of sacred thing. Um, they or fantastic organizations like Oyve Otisi, uh, the Vote and Beyond, uh, you know, have done really heroic work in the last 10 or 20 years to monitor ballot boxes, to try and monitor election irregularities, to call out any potential fraud or monkeying around with the vote itself. You know, they've found some instances, but by and large, I think they've succeeded in their job of, you know, making sure that significant vote tampering or voter fraud, uh, you know, it it isn't at a level that would dramatically affect the results of an election. That said, elections in Turkey in that same period have almost never been fair. Um, And that's because so many of the structures that allow for a truly open election, uh, you know, and this is more true now than it's been in the past, but it's been true to different degrees across, across Turkey's history. You know, the barriers to entry into electoral politics have been very, very high. And at the moment, the sort of structural factors that allow for a successful presidential campaign or parliamentary campaign are very much consolidated underneath control uh, by the AKP, Erdogan, and their clients. Uh, This makes it very, very difficult for an opposition party to, uh, A, form a coherent campaign and message, and B, get it out. Um, And, you know, the, uh, I think this is kind of the important uh, thing to stress as a general matter in terms of the run-up to the 2023 elections. In terms of Erdogan's chances, I mean, we've gone through peaks and valleys over the last couple of months in terms of optimism about the opposition's chances in these elections. You can look at polls from the last six months, some of them, you know, you know going, dating back to maybe, you know, June or July, 
looked pretty good. It looked like they had the coalition together to, you know, uh, overcome uh, Erdogan. Certainly his, his, his sort of abstract popularity figures are lower than they've ever been. Um, but it just, it just completely hinges, like I said at the top, on the ability of a, a candidate to marshal the sort of explicit and impl implicit coalition necessary to overcome Erdogan. And, you know, I think what's happening with Imamoglu today is an attempt to, to kind of head that off at the pass. I mean, he, he is all but signaled at this point that the guy he doesn't want to face is Imamoglu. Mm. Like, uh, and whether or not uh, Kilish Dorolu and the other leaders of the opposition parties will actually listen to that remains to be seen. If he did lose, do you believe that the AKP would want to leave power peacefully? Good question. I mean, that's the, that's really that's really the million dollar question right there. Because you know, at some point, once you've doubled down uh, in, in the system, I mean, I think one of the important developments of the AKP period is that you know Turkey has a long tradition of authoritarianism and has gone through periods in which you've had charismatic leaders building. Uh, coalitions behind mm -hmm. them, but they've often been quite ephemeral. Mm -hmm. uh, and Turkey has had uh, strong institutions, particularly the military and the bureaucracy, that have always acted as a counterbalance to, uh, you know, to democratically elected uh, leaders. Mm -hmm. But it seems that, you know, since the AKP has come to power, you know, they've really managed to bring those institutions under their firm uh, political control. I mean, in retrospect, my takeaway on Turkey is that the liberalism of the early AKP period, although was a genuine liberalism from some elements of the AKP, was also a function of the material conflict between elements within mm -hmm. the bureaucracy, uh, um, you know, Erdogan had one coalition coming to power with liberals, uh, and then when that did not suit him uh, after 2015, he reorientated his political uh, uh, um, um, uh, coalition. And the byproduct is that the institutions that underpin the Turkish state have to some degree degenerated into vehicles for the presidency. Right. And I just wonder, you know, with that institutional setup, which is relatively novel in Turkish history, mm -hmm. would would an AKP government be willing to do all kinds of shenanigans to stay in power? This is what we saw in 2015 when it looked like they were going to lose power. They used not... They started a war. They wagged the dog. I mean... Yeah, they, yeah, they basically... Mm -hmm. But I, as I as I pointed out in my War on the Rocks piece, they they did pull these kinds of shenanigans in 2015 to break up a coalition uh, and you know sort of re-engineer um, a, a a hung parliament uh, to their favor. Um, but that was not without you know pretty serious human and material costs. I mean that year 2015 2016 between. Uh, the June elections in 2015 and the coup attempt in July of 2016 uh, was the bloodiest year in Turkish history for going back you know, several decades. Um, and it cost them a lot of instability um, mm -hmm. and a lot of political capital got spent or had to get spent in order to affect those particular changes. Um, 
on the question, uh, you know, of what does a post Erdogan Turkey potentially look like if one is even possible, um, you know, I, I think it's a hard question to answer, but I think there's a couple of important uh, things to consider. You know, Erdogan has been in power longer than Ataturk, the founder of the country, was in power. He's he's almost been in power as long as him and plus his successor Ismet Inunu were in power. Um, and it, quite famously, it was Inunu who you know oversaw this sort of transition to multi-party democracy in the late '40s. And what I've always kind of argued about that is, you know, that happened because at some level, you know, the the you know autocrat in power at that time, Ismet Inunu, understood that what was going to come in his wake was going to be accessible. It was going to be both accessible to him and acceptable to the kind of larger political map uh, that he had helped construct for Turkey uh, in, in his time in the, in the presidency in the 1940s. Whether that's possible in the scenario, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, it certainly doesn't seem at this point like Erdogan would be comfortable with anybody in the opposition taking over. Um, so that certainly raises some some serious questions and alarms about, you know, what lengths Erdogan would go to uh, to avoid having to hand over power. The other end of this, though, it sort of points up the challenges to any particular new government that might come into power. I mean, as you said, the sort of institutions that were quite strong in Turkey for many, many decades have been pretty seriously uh, degenerated under the AKP rule. And, you know, you have to think like you have, let's say, you know, you have uh, a new government in power and Erdogan has left the scene and, uh, you know, things are looking on the up. Um, you have to select someone to become the foreign minister. You have to select someone to become uh, the leader of the uh, intelligence agency. And what are you going to do with that, those kinds of agencies that are really still stacked with uh, bureaucrats, leaders, and cadres that were created under Erdogan's aegis? Like, you know, who is in Turkey's, you know, foreign minister a year from now going to be able to trust within that ministry? You, you know, and who are you going to get to do that job? <laughs> I mean, the, the challenge, to put it simply, is like the, the political challenges that face the opposition in terms of defeating Erdogan in an election actually, in some ways, kind of pale in comparison to the political and structural challenges they may face if they win. Um, and I think that spells uh, you know a, a bit of pessimism I, I from my end and i'm not a typically pessimistic person about these sorts of things i would like to believe that erdogan could lose and leave power peacefully but um you know even in in that in that sort of rosy scenario i see lots and lots of structural challenges that turkey has to overcome in order to get get back on its feet well on that cheerful point <laughs> i would uh, like to thank you for joining us today and for discussing Turkey's upcoming elections. I hope you'll come back again. Perhaps we can follow up on this once Erdogan has been re-elected. That's going to be my, <laughs> it's going to be my call on the whole thing. Yeah, um, you, I'm not in the prediction business, but you can have that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, have I'll definitely come back and call we'll, you on it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens. But um, uh, I would like to uh, tell all our uh, listeners and watchers, do check out uh, James's uh, article in War on the Rocks. It's in the uh, description to this uh, video. So that's very much worth uh, listening to. Anything that you want to plug? I, 
look, I, I just started this position a couple of months ago at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Um, give us a look, fpri.org. We're doing lots of really interesting analysis on a range of foreign policy issues, uh, you know, sourced mo- for the most part from you know, experts with really deep uh, knowledge of uh, what's happening on the ground around the world, especially uh, in Eurasia and Asian affairs and in the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, we do events and podcasts and things like that, too. So, uh, you know, come come join us over on that side. We'd love to see you. Well, thanks once again. And as we say on This is Revolution, we are out.